Welcome to the Dog Liaison Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. On this podcast, we focus on giving guardians of anxious dogs a home. If your dog has reactivity, aggression, separation anxiety, or generalized anxiety, then this podcast is what you have been looking for. We are going to go deep into understanding your dog's anxiety-related disorders. We're also going deep into what it is like to be the guardian of an anxious dog so that you have a sanctuary and a guide to help you to be able to sustain your dog's recovery. I'm a professional dog trainer. At this point, I work exclusively with dogs facing anxiety-related disorders, and I really understand on a deep level how to support you and your anxious dog. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, hello, friends. We're talking about a really juicy topic. We're going to get into a little bit of controversial uh, opinions. Today, we're talking about when a technique isn't helping, should you actually switch to a different technique? We're going to be talking about why your relaxation protocol is not working. I'm going to be diagnosing a couple of reasons why it's not working the way we want it to and what you can be doing instead. And I really want to look into the look at that engage, disengage game. So if you know that your dog's anxiety has improved a little bit, but perhaps you've started to see a plateau or perhaps you're not getting the results with a certain technique, this is going to be for you. I really want to break down some things that you need to go through, some thought processes you need to check off to really assure, should you actually switch to a different technique? And one of the first things that I see a lot is that we change to a different trainer, right? So we've started off with, say, a balanced trainer, And that didn't go well. So then we're going to switch to a positive trainer and that didn't go well. So then we're going to go to an alpha pack and then that didn't go well. So we're going to go to this other like one-off type. We tend to change styles before we change techniques. And I think that we need to first establish the difference. Okay. There's a major, major, major difference between switching between styles and switching between techniques. Okay. And I think that one of the things that has happened is that we get stuck in thinking that there's only one way to do each style, that like positive reinforcement operates one way, balance training operates a different way, alpha pack operates one way. And so if this trainer didn't work and this style didn't work, well, then that means we need to just do a 180 switch and go to a new style. But that's not the case, my friends. And this is one of the reasons why I think that we need to first establish, we start off with who is using science-backed methods, right? That's the first criteria. Who is qualified? Who is actually giving science-backed techniques? But then once you find your pool of people, of trainers using science-backed techniques, then you need to look at their styles and their philosophies and make sure that they're aligning with you. So I really want to break down all of the different ways that you can change your techniques, what we're looking for to decide if you need to change your technique, how you know if it's time to change your technique. And this this conversation was inspired, actually, by someone who just joined the RRP yesterday. Okay, she just joined Team Pip. Welcome, Team Pip, to the RRP. Okay, and she had talked to me. She was like, Jenna. I really love you. I've been binging you. I've been really excited to work with you. I just think you're just the greatest thing in the world. But I have to admit 
that when I first found out that you were a positive trainer, my heart sank. And I, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> She's like, because I had tried positive training before. I had done the throw the treats method and it didn't do anything. Nothing happened. Okay, let's break this down. I want to break down what that experience is about, why you're experiencing that. And does that mean that you need to just try some other technique? Does that mean that positive reinforcement training or science-backed methods are not necessarily the end-all be-all? So beyond just switching to a different style, beyond just like picking a balance trainer, beyond picking all that, let's say you're just sticking within counter-conditioning desensitization because that's what the, the data says is the best at safely exposing dogs to their trigger and reconditioning their associations to it without a risk of physical harm or emotional welfare damage. That's what science says is the best. So if you just operate within counter conditioning and desensitization, even under that umbrella, my friend, you have like 800 different techniques to pick from. You've got a pool of options to choose from. And what I see is that a lot of times when we're first exposed to positive reinforcement training, we're exposed to the just throw treats every single time the trigger comes out. And every single time the trigger comes out, throw a bunch of treats, have a party, put your smile on. Yes, 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 yes. And that'll work. That'll recondition your dog. Just stick with it, my friend. Just go. And my friends, if you have an anxious dog, if you have a highly reactive dog, if you have a dog demonstrating aggression, especially a dog that has a bite history, you're going to have to do a little bit more than just throwing the treats in the air and seeing what sticks. <laughs> there needs to be a little bit more method to that. So first thing I need you to understand is that techniques are going to have names and they're going to have a clear outline of steps. The first red flag to me that you're not actually doing a technique is if you use the language, I'm just throwing treats in the air. I'm just giving my dog a treat. Well, that could be a whole number of, of techniques. Like that doesn't orient my trainer brain at all. That narrows down about 800 to maybe like, I don't know, 50 different options. So yeah, you've narrowed it down because you're giving your dog food. Okay, cool. But we still have a lot of investigating. So the first thing you need to ask yourself is, do you even know the name of the technique that you're utilizing? Or are you just like, I can tell you that there's treats involved. I can tell you that when the trigger arrives, it happens. Or you go, I know that it's counter conditioning and desensitization, Jenna. Wonderful. That's a great first step, my friend. Congratulations, you are absolutely on the right track. Still not valid enough to know whether or not the technique is working or whether or not the technique needs improvement. Because this is where I'm segueing with it. It's not that necessarily the technique is bad, it's that you're not utilizing the technique in its appropriate form. It's not being executed correctly. Now I'm gonna get into why that could be happening because most of those reasons have nothing to do with you. So we're gonna get into that in a second, okay? But majority of the time that I hear this, I tried look at that. I tried engage, disengage. I tried a relaxation protocol and it didn't work. The majority of the time that I hear that, 
I start going, mm, was it the technique that didn't work or was it the execution of the technique that wasn't effective? Two very different things. Okay. So the first thing you need to establish is whatever technique you're doing right now, does it have a name and are there clear steps? Can you name the steps? Can you say step one is this? Step two is that. Step three is this. Step four is that. Double the points if you can say why you're doing each of those steps. Double the points. Okay. If you're doing steps, but you have no idea why you're doing them, I understand that that's a preference thing. I understand not everybody likes to know the why behind what they're doing. Sometimes they just will do. But I have a feeling if you're listening to this episode, you like to know the why. <laughs> do you know why you're doing each of those steps? Do you know what their purpose is? Things to consider. The next thing I need you to think about is, are you tracking data effectively? Because here's what I can say. If you're constantly switching techniques, if you're like, today I'm going to do a relaxation protocol. Oh, that was a hiccup. So next week I'm going to do look at that. Oh, that wasn't good. So next time I'm going to do behavioral adjustment training. Oh, that didn't work either. So next week I'm going to, and you're constantly hopping techniques. You're not giving it the reliable data that it actually needs. We have to track progress over a myriad of ways. Some of that is short-term. Some of the ways that we track progress is short-term. That's true. But really, we want to be tracking it over a longer period. And that is especially true if your dog has anxiety. Because anxiety is not going to be fixed by one technique in a couple of weeks. Sorry, friends. I understand that dog culture is like, here, buy this seven one-hour private lessons with me. And by the end of it, your dog will be cured of anxiety. But that's not really how we fix anxiety. That's not how we work through recovery. We have to be tracking over a period of time. And one of the things that I see is that many people don't even know what data they're supposed to be tracking. They don't even know what, what are the different measures of success. They don't even know, they know over or under threshold, but over and under threshold is not a clear line. There's like several phases of that, I guess if you can say, right? There's several lines of that. So because it's not a clear line, sometimes you can't oversimplify by she was under threshold, she was over threshold. That's not data clear enough. It's like a starting point. And one of the things that I have my clients do, because our, our process for checking data is called alleviate. One of the techniques that I give my clients is I have several different ways to, for them to get good information on whether or not they're progressing. I give them very quick reference points that is just a yes, no, right? This was a yes. This was a no. Very quick assertion. I give them another method, which is like a pie chart. So there's like three options there. They can pick between the three options. That's a, that's a way to get it even more narrowed, right? So it gives the brain a quick visual on progress. For separation anxiety, we have a, like a line chart and there's actually like, it goes up and down. So then we start getting even more nitty gritty and we start looking at the dog's body language. And one of the things that I see is that we're doing a really good job educating our clients 
on body language, look for the lip lick, look for the whale eye, look for the yawn, look for the play stretch. We can give them like a nice little handout. These are the behaviors you wanna look at. But we are doing a crappy job at teaching them how to, and really coaching them how to track that behavior trend. We really want to trust the trainer to observe your dog and be able to say, oh, he's too stressed or she's too too stressed or she's actually way too under threshold. You can afford to increase the difficulty. We're, we're relying on the trainers to say all that. The trainers don't know your dogs. I'm sorry. I just want to like give out our secret. The trainers will never, ever, ever know your dog in the way that you know your dog. Period. Study your dog. Study it. I guarantee you, guarantee you, your dog, your trainer right now who comes to your house and spends an hour and 15 minutes with you is not studying your dog the way they deserve to be studied. I guarantee it. They probably can see things faster and they're probably picking up on behaviors faster than the average bear. That's true. But the way that they interpret that, that brings me to the most important point. Even if you can observe it, how do you interpret that? What actions come after that? Studying your data to really see our techniques effective at accomplishing its intended goal, okay? One of the things I want you to understand though, is that especially if you have a dog that's highly anxious and has several triggers, several phobias, is afraid of noises, is afraid of water, is afraid of the leaves falling down from the trees on walks. Every single time we have a dog, who he's finally being able to walk out in the daylight because for years he wouldn't even go out. If it was daylight, he would only go out in the dark. We've also had dogs who won't go out in the dark. They'll only go out in daylight. If you have a dog that's afraid of, you know, everything under the sun or triggered, we should say by everything under the sun, even if it's not fear motivated, my friend, having one technique, even if you can name it, having one technique is not going to be sufficient. Instead, you need to have a library of techniques. You need to have a toolbox of strategies. And your goal is to know the strengths and the weaknesses of each of those techniques, the strengths and the weaknesses of each of, that, of, each of the things in the toolbox. That's your intended goal. I'm going to know why I'm going to use this technique. I'm going to know when to use it based off of my dog's body language, based off of the environment, based off of the criteria and based off of our sustainable routine. So I'm going to, I'm going to be able to do a quick assessment and go, this is what the criteria and environment is. This is what I'm seeing on my dog. This is what makes most sense sustainably for the lifestyle that I want to live. And this is the technique that makes most sense that is conducive for that. Right now, I'm going to jump into a pattern game. Right now, I'm going to jump into a relaxation protocol. Right now, I'm going to jump into the alleviate steps. Right now, I'm going to jump into Playway. You have a toolbox of a cool bunch of different techniques that you can select from that you know the strengths and weaknesses for. That is what is so, I think, is missed 
in the vast majority of training programs right now is we, we really want to give you the most bang for your buck without having to overwhelm you with so many different techniques, right? So they really give you like one to three different techniques and they say, okay, here's the one to three, master these and go out and go training. But the information is only 15% of what you actually need. The information, the education is only about 15% of that. The rest is knowing how to apply it and knowing what is sustainable and knowing is, again, is about that dialogue with your dog. It's about being in a relationship with your dog and knowing what is effective for you guys in that moment. And no trainer is going to be able to tell you that in 15 minutes. It's just not going to happen. I don't care how friendly they are. I will never be able to look at a dog and just within 15 minutes of seeing them and observing them being like, you know what we should do? We should do all of these techniques right now. Here we go. You must be creating a library of techniques. And this kind of, I think the theme of this is that sometimes it's not the technique that's the problem. It's the way that you learned it. And it is the depth of the, of the information that you gathered based on that technique. Maybe you got bits and pieces of it, or maybe you got the full picture, but you didn't know how to reflect the data once you had it. Or Maybe you have one technique that's really good in certain contexts, but isn't very good in a bunch of other contexts, and you don't know what to do in those contexts. We have to get past this. Like, the thing is, is one of the reasons why most of the people in the RP, most of the people that come to work with me, have worked with another trainer before, and they've been on their recovery journey for six months or more, sometimes years before they come to me. And the reason is, is because you have an epiphany. There's an epiphany that happens. Once you have been on the journey for a little while and you've tried a couple of things, you have a come to Jesus moment. And you're like, well, I've been trying to oversimplify this for way too long. I've been trying to take a very significant mental health problem and fix it with one to three techniques or not even really very good techniques. Like I'm not even executing them correctly. And you have this come to Jesus moment and you go, oh, I think I'm gonna need a little bit more of a comprehensive approach. I think I'm gonna need to really dig deeper. I think I'm gonna need to understand these principles on a deeper level. I think I'm gonna need to know the why behind what I'm doing. I think I need to find a trainer or a coach who can turn me into an expert beyond just, are they nice and are they friendly and do they love dogs? That is the main reason why most of the people that come to the RP have been on the journey for so long. It's not because we like, it's not technically a requirement. It's just that they've had that come to Jesus moment and they can appreciate <laughs> that they're going to need a more comprehensive approach. They're going to need to have a a bunch of tools in their toolbox.
if you don't know what a relaxation protocol is, let's cover that. A relaxation protocol is something that every dog, but especially our anxious dogs, need to know. It is a process of getting them to self-soothe and making them feel more comfortable out in the world or even in the home or when alone or in any condition. Okay. There are several different relaxation protocols. You might hear of like really real relaxation protocol, the relax on the mat, treat for calm. You might hear just care and overalls relaxation protocol. So those are some names that can come up and they all have very subtle differences. So let's talk about some of the things that can go awry. Okay. When we say that the relaxation protocol isn't working or you're not getting the results you're looking for, namely what we mean is that your dog is still activated. They're still on. Maybe they seem too intense for the treats. Maybe they're doing the down and they're just still alert. Like they're still buzzing, right? And so a lot of times we see a variety of things. The first and foremost is that the cue is too activating. So what this means is that, for example, if you're using a mat or you're using a station as your dog's relaxation cue, they may go to the mat. They might pop themselves on it but then they just stay there and they're like bug-eyed and they're looking at you like, can I have a treat? Can I have a treat? I'm here. I'm doing it. Or they know what behaviors are going to get them the treat. So then they like, if they know that the resting their head is going to get them the treat, they'll put their head down and look at, look at you with the eyes. <laughs> like my head's down. Do you see me doing it? Right. Put some hearts up on the screen. If you have related to this experience and you know what I mean by your dog just seems activated. It doesn't seem like they're doing it, but it doesn't feel relaxed. It feels obedient, right? And that is the complete opposite of what we're looking for in a relaxation protocol. We're not looking for our dog to be in a downstay. We're not looking for our dog to be obedient in this protocol. Instead, we are looking for them to breathe. We are looking to them to start doing more organic dog behaviors. We're looking for them to just calm and just be chill. Now, another reason why your dog might be too activated is because the down is not that comfortable of a position. Now, every relaxation protocol I've ever seen has required that the dog be in a down. I'm not sure where that came from other than the fact that when dogs sleep, they're usually in a down, but who says <laughs> that the only time a dog can be calm is if they're in a down position. And therefore, if they're in a down, they're automatically calm. Those two things, like they're not necessarily the same, <laughs> right? And so really you should be looking to, to reward calm behavior and even cue calm behavior standing, walking, sitting, calm behavior can exist in any position the dog finds comfortable. A relaxation protocol, in my opinion, should be able to be performed regardless of what position your dog finds comfortable. And so if you're sitting there trying to put your dog in a down over and over and over and over again, that actually can cause more frustration. Ironically, you may be 
keeping your dog activated because you're fighting them to put them in that dog down the whole time. And they're like, I really don't want to be in the down. I just want to stand here. I just want to look. I just want to be in this sit. And so permitting your dog to be able to move and explore, and that may be more soothing. The other reason that I see your relaxation protocol is not working is because you're not removing yourself correctly. What I see when we're training relaxation protocols is that the person is down on the floor next to their dog, giving treats, staring at the dog and trying to capture every little moment. And it's a very like, it's a training session. And like, you're not actually raising the criteria to move yourself out of the equation. This is one of the first lessons that I want you to take away from this chat (laughs) is that your relaxation protocol is not meant to be a training session. Your relaxation protocol is not meant to feel like you're teaching your dog sit, stay, like you're teaching touch, like you're teaching roll over, like you're teaching all of the other like skills that we would think of. That's not what the relaxation protocol is supposed to feel like. It should feel, if you're doing it correctly, in my opinion, it should feel like y'all are just watching TV with your dog. It should feel like you guys are just sitting in the park, reading a book under the shade with your dog. So if it feels like you're like, okay, I got my treats. I'm on the floor. I got my dog. I'm looking at him. Here we go. We're doing it. You've already set up the training session to be more activating than it should be just by nature of the setup. So thinking about what behaviors you're representing in your dog, when you're doing a relaxation protocol correctly, the first thing I want you to think about is we are not training. We are not training right now. This is not a training moment. We're not teaching. We are existing. We're in a moment with our dog. We're breathing, right? And this is a little bit more challenging to really, I think one of the reasons why people get hung up in all of the other relaxation protocol formulas is because they're following the steps right? They watched their YouTube video. They have their little printout. They have their little document. They, they listen to their trainer and they're following the steps, right? I treat this. I treat that. I treat this. I treat that. That in and of itself is too activating. One of the hardest concepts that you have to work towards as the guardian is actually making it feel more organic for yourself. Let it flow. This is not a training session. This is an experience with your dog. It's much looser, right? And when we're thinking about what, when to feed and what to feed, yeah, there might be a strategy, but a lot of times we want to follow what the book says to feed, right? The book says, treat the hip down. The book says, treat the head down. The book says when the dog walks to the mat, that's what you're supposed to feed. We want to follow what the book says, but actually your dog gets to decide what gets the treat. Your dog has the data. Your dog tells you what is a calming behavior for him and what is not. So the first several weeks, several weeks of doing your tra- your uh, relaxation protocol with your dog, instead of thinking like, here we go, we're training my dog to calm down. 
instead of thinking like I'm training, I want you to think I'm exploring. I'm figuring out my dog right now. I'm trying to figure out in, in what order, like what behaviors is my dog going to display and in what order that indicate that he's actually calming down. My dog, not just what the book says. Like for me, Max, if he's anxious or if he's frustrated and I try to put him right into a stationary position, oh, the fight <laughs> I'm going to get from him. He can't handle that. He's got to be moving. So I intentionally set up opportunities for him to do calm behavior in motion and reinforce that so that we can get to the point where he's ready and capable and willing to offer a stationary position. This episode is brought to you by my signature coaching program, the Recovering Rover Program for Anxious Dogs. One dog, one million phobias. Reactivity, noise sensitivity, separation anxiety, generalized anxiety, and the list goes on and on. If your dog has multiple anxiety-related disorders, then you know the awful stress of feeling trapped in your own home. Having a dog with anxiety does not mean sacrificing your own mental health. The RRP is the most comprehensive program that coaches guardians on how to treat their dog's anxiety. This is a six-month group coaching program dedicated to making you an expert and desensitizing your dog's triggers and making your dog feel more calm and comfortable in the world. For all the info on the Recovering Rover program and to see whether you and your dog are a good fit, go to getacalmdog.com backslash RRP to learn more. And now back to the episode. And this was actually, in all honesty, the catalyst for me introducing Be a Dog on the Move. Be a Dog is my signature relaxation protocol. I teach it in the RP. And one of the criteria for Be a Dog, the way we've increased the difficulty, is we get the dogs to do it in motion. There's Be a Dog in motion. And one of the reasons why I created it that way was because my dog couldn't do Be a Dog stationary right out of the get-go. The reason I had that is because I was seeing, I was forcing him to be still. And he's like, I can't, my body is moving. I can't. Like you're actually making me more frustrated, more anxious by trying to make me still than if you just let me move a little bit, pace it out, walk around, and I'll tell you when I'm ready to be still. So you're exploring your dog and you're finding out in what order do they demonstrate calming behavior. And then you're also looking for the point at which it's time to stop feeding because there is a fade out food process. Okay. And in for, for some dogs, just cold Turkey stopping the first, the dog that comes to my mind at the moment is river. Who's in the RP. If we just like stop the food, cold Turkey, she's going to like go from zero to a hundred real dang quick. Cause she's like, <gasps> she needs that fade out process. Right. But on the other hand, there are other dogs that if you keep feeding them in that moment, you're keeping them alert. You're keeping them prepared for the next moment. They think that there's, a, there's an event that's happening that they're supposed to be aware of. So you're asking your dog, do you prefer if, if I just read your body language, I know exactly what position you're going to be in. And I just immediately strip the treats away to keep, to let you really sink into that relaxation. Or do you need me to fade? Is there a certain point where I can completely remove the treats just automatically and move into T-touch, 
right? So you're really exploring your dog. You're not training your dog. You're finding more information about them. You're not in a training session. You're learning about your dog. That's what you're doing when you're establishing that relaxation protocol. So I want to kind of recap some of the things that I encourage you to do. And full disclosure, I really want you to know that what I'm about to share with you is part of the Be a Dog Relaxation Protocol. I am biased towards my protocol. I created it. Okay. And I get a lot of success out of it in the RRP. So all of the principles I'm sharing with you are coming from the Be a Dog. Okay. The first and foremost is that your relaxation protocol should be allowing your dog to move and stand and be in any position they want. Your relaxation protocol should allow your dog to be a dog. Okay. Number two, your relaxation protocol should not require a mat unless your dog tells you they require a mat. So for example, there are some dogs that don't like certain flooring. So they don't like too hard. They don't like too soft. They don't like grass. They don't like whatever. Right. So if your dog is telling you, I am, I have a either phobia of a certain flooring, or I just have a dislike of a certain flooring, then providing them a mat, it can be very helpful, but I am not, and I don't encourage people to automatically jump to the mat as their go-to solution. Because in my experience, it's like, first of all, it's really impractical. Let's just call it what it is. Like, I know that guardians are willing to hold their sacrifice and they're willing to take their mat with them. Okay. And I, I love that sacrifice. I love that commitment, but I'm here to tell you that there are other things that are going to require commitment. And I don't know if the mat is the sword to die on my friends. <laughs> like you can get a doc to calm down on regular floor. That's fine. Okay. Number three, a cue, like a verbal cue or a visual cue is not a requirement. It's pretty much just a nice to have. And here's why. Because I didn't even know this until I accidentally found out with all of my clients. I'm going to be like straight up with you. When I was first teaching be a dog, I told everyone, you got to cue your dog, be a dog, right? You got to teach them that verbal cue so that it's transferable to a bunch of different conditions. And if I'm being completely honest, the vast majority of my clients never cued their dog, be a dog. <laughs> the dog never got to the point where they memorized that cue. But you know what? The behavior still existed in other contexts. The behavior was still offered volunteered, established in other environments, independent of a cue. And this was a huge learning lesson for me because my brain was like, I got to have a cue so that they'll display it in other places. But what you find is that when you establish your relaxation protocol as a life skill, as an experience, more so than just like a trick to know, when you establish it as a life skill, it becomes part of their enrichment routine. It becomes part of their normal behavior. It's like, it's part of who they are and they just are going to demonstrate it. Whether it's intentional or not is up for debate. One of these days we'll learn how to talk to dogs and they'll tell us if it's intentional, but they really experience it. And it becomes part of their behavior repertoire that they just volunteer, regardless of whether or not you've taught them a cue. So focusing so hard on, well, I got to have the visual cue of a mat, or I got to have the verbal cue of relax, or I got to have the, this, or I got to have the, that, that is distracting you from teaching the actual experience and the behavior, which is actually transferable. And so once you have that, 
then I would say the cue is nice to have. And if you're really interested in having a verbal cue, knock yourself off. All right. Like it's fine. It's fine. So number four, are you actually memorizing your individual dog's behavior? This is going to be a little like serious. Okay. But I mean, it. it's like a little bit of a joke, a little bit serious. If someone put a gun to your head and was like, can you tell me the behavior repertoire that your dog uses to calm down? Like, what are the behaviors that he's going to demonstrate? Could you ramble at least three of them just with certainty, right? Because consistency patterns exist. And I'm not saying that it's always going to, it's not always going to be in the exact same order and the exact same routine, but dogs exist in patterns. There are behavior trends, right? And so when you can establish that your dog is going to go in a certain order for me, for my dog, it's, he's going to pace, then he's going to come up to me and he's going to put his head right between my legs. And he's going to give me a chin rest, right? And he's going to ask for some pets underneath his neck. Then he's going to give me a deep sigh and he's going to get a little bit heavier. Then he's going to find somewhere to crawl next to me. Let's say it's on the couch. He's going to get on the couch and right around then is when I can really start to see, can I fade out the treats? Let's see. Sometimes he's still looking and says, I want a little bit, a couple, I want a little kids that you got over there. I'll give him a couple more. And then he gives me a run deep sigh. It's usually, and every once in a while, especially if we're on like furniture, like a, like a soft substance, he's going to get back up, do a little spin, you know, that like they do curl himself into a ball and go, it's going to happen just like that. Okay. We're, whether we're at the vet, we're at the park, we're at the, whatever, it's going to start off with a lot of motion. Then he's going to come over and ask for chin rubs. And then he's going to go into those little circles. So you want to figure out what is your dog's routine look like? Finally, it should feel like your dog has complete control over the experience. You are not dictating to your dog that they must be relaxed. You are not telling your dog, go relax. You are not telling your dog, you should be calm right now. I don't know about you, but telling me to calm down has never worked. If I'm upset saying, calm down, go, go calm down. I'm like, excuse you? (laughs) No. (laughs) Right. So instead they have control and they get to decide would breathing help me feel better? Would giving a deep sigh actually help me feel better? right? And they have control of changing their mind too. They may start off offering a relaxation protocol, right? They may start going down into their calming behaviors and you can really see them self-soothing. And then maybe a, a, a criteria in the environment gets more challenging. Maybe it's not even a criteria in the environment. Maybe it's a criteria within, right? There's some sort of shift And your dog realizes, actually, I can't handle that right now. We need to get moving. We need to go do something else. That's fine. Your dog has control over the on-off button of the relaxation protocol. It's not your treats. It's not you. It's not the mat. It's your dog. Your dog has control over that. You have control over setting it up to look as organic as possible, right? You are making sure that if you're doing a relaxation protocol, you are also demonstrating relaxed behaviors yourself. You're watching TV, you're reading a book, you're measuring your breaths. You're not staring down at your dog, watching them intently, giving them direct eye contact, 
hyper-focused, ready to feed. Oh, I see that little ear twitch. I better feed that little moment. It's too intense, guys. That's like, whew, take a breather. So you missed a moment that you could have fed, whatever. The good news is you're going to get 5 million more opportunities in the dog's life to feed them, right? Like give ourselves some grace. This is a relaxation protocol. It's not a training session. And, you know, just for some context, when you guys are looking for relaxation protocols, you guys can just type in dog relaxation protocols and get a whole slew of stuff. I think that the free content is good, but when things start to fail is when it's time to shift into a new protocol. And that's one of the reasons why I live be a dog, because it is set up with all of that intent. Some of the things that I've been hearing with people in my DMs and folks that have been talking to you about the RP is that they have experience with look at that and they have experience with engage, disengage, but they're feeling stuck with it, that they're not getting past that next point, that it feels robotic, that it feels automatic. So those are some things I want to talk about with you today. Okay. So first and foremost, if you don't know what look at that is, what engage, disengage is, these are two games they're very similar. They're effectively the same thing. Okay. Just, I prefer engage, disengage. Look at that is a game uh, created by Control Unleashed. President McDevitt created it. And it basically is in which you get the dog to identify or look at the trigger. Okay. Engage, disengage is the more modernized, modernized version of that game in which we don't have the dogs necessarily look at the trigger, but we do look for the identifiers Let's say the dog has identified the trigger, which is to say that they've heard it, they've smelled it, they've seen it, whatever it may be, they know that the trigger is in the environment. And what happens when you get the dog to identify that the trigger's environment is that you automatically give a treat. Now, if you aren't familiar with how um, look at that is fu functioning, engage, disengage is functioning, the purpose of giving the treat at this moment is to create a classical condition. The point is to classically condition the dog into a positive association. And what will actually happen is that you're classically conditioning the dog to anticipate that a treat is arriving every single time that the trigger arrives. Now, this is a really cool little way to get the dog to anticipate something juicy is happening. There's nothing inherently wrong with classically conditioning. There's nothing inherently wrong with getting the dog to look at that or engage with the trigger. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. These are all principles that are based in classical conditioning that is very effective at doing what it does. Where the troubles come is when we get the dogs stuck at that stage and it starts transitioning into the behavior of just staring at the trigger. And what can actually happen is that the dogs become almost over aroused, overstimulated by the fact that the trigger is in the environment. And instead of calming the dog, instead of making the dog feel more comfortable that the triggers in the environment and they are desensitized to it, it has activated them. It has lit them up. And pros and cons to this pro is that perhaps you have made your dog really like its trigger. It now has a positive association with it. The con to that is that it's not a very sustainable plan. And if our goal is to get our dogs to walk nicely around the block, to take them for a hike, to be able to drink our coffee on the lounge, whatever it may be, those are all activities that are going to not be very easy if the dog is staring at the trigger the entire time. <laughs> so 
what I want to break down is that there are indeed next steps past that engage, past the disengage. There are indeed next steps in which your dog is moving past the robot loop where they just stare at the trigger and get a treat and stare at the trigger, look back at you, get a treat, stare at the trigger, look back at you, get a treat, stare at the trigger, get a treat. Like that automatic loop where we see their pupils dilate and we see them all go crazy and they get all stimulated. There's a step past that, my friends. (laughs) And I don't think many people are talking about that. Now, one of the things that I think is important before we talk about those next steps, because I'm going to get into that. But one of the things that I think is important we talk about is that one of the reasons engage, disengage, and look at that is so useful is because it's a way to match the energy of the space. If you have a dog that's relatively close to its trigger, so for example, you're in a city, right? And triggers are coming out of the woodwork. You walk out your front door and the trigger's there. Like that is when engage, disengage is in its prime usefulness, okay? On the other hand, if you're in the middle of an open park and the nearest trigger is 250 feet away, and that's far, far, far below your dog's threshold, you maybe don't really need engage, disengage because your dog is already so reserved. Potentially he's already invested in his stick. He's already invested in his belly rubs. He's already invested in whatever that pulling him out of that moment to be like, Hey, there's a trigger over there is counterintuitive at that point. Right? So at that stage, you actually skip engage, disengage, and you go into these later steps, which I'm going to get to in a second. But I think it's important that we understand when engage, disengage is, is worthwhile and when it's not. Engage, disengage, look at that. These games, they're same, basically the same thing. They are most useful when the trigger is already heightened, when the trigger is already imminent, when the, not when the dog is over threshold, but when the trigger is there, right? And you want to keep the dog from going over threshold. But if you are operating at such a far below distance and such a far below point of the threshold, going back into engage, disengage in some cases is counterintuitive. That's one of the reasons why we have things like Playway, right? Playway, which um, I actually just got through teaching these lessons um, in the RP. Playway is works its best when it's really, really, really at a mild rate of the trigger. So the trigger is at such a minimized version of itself that it can be effective. But if the trigger is starting to get closer to that threshold, not over threshold, but is starting to get more antagonizing in nature, Playway is going to fall apart on you. And in that case, that's why you would want like an engage, disengage, right? So the point of this that I'm trying to say is you want to make sure that you're using the tools in your toolbox that matches the energy of the space, that matches the energy of the criteria of the environment, okay? So let's talk about what some of these later steps are. You get your dog to engage, get your dog to disengage. What are these next steps? Well, the next step is a behavior. Like spoiler alert, the next step is we need to get your dog doing some sort of behavior. And your question might be, well, Jenna, what behavior do I have my dog do? And my answer is always, 
It depends on your dog's preferences. It depends on your preferences and it depends on the criteria of the environment and the context of the environment. There's not ever one go-to behavior that you just always do. There's not even a go-to three behaviors. In fact, there's a go-to 28 and then some behaviors that you can pull from. And it depends on what is your dog saying that she wants in that moment? What is going to make her most comfortable? We are in a dialogue with our dogs. This is not a dictatorship. We are asking our dogs, what is going to make you most comfortable? Do you want to have a, an engagement with that trigger? Do you want to approach it? Would you like to smell it? Or would you like to run around in zoomies and play with your squeaky toy? Would you like to put your head on the floor and smell all these bushes? Or would you like to do a spin and, and have some fun with tricks? Okay, so number one is what would your dog say that she wants? Number two is what do you prefer? Personally, I, and I've talked about this before, personally, my relationship with my dog is a little hyper-independent, if I'm being completely honest. His attachment to me has definitely increased since he's gotten older and since we've been in COVID. So he definitely wants to be all up in my grill a little bit more frequently. But for the vast majority of our lives, we've lived very independent lives. Like we go out for our walks. I listen to my true kind podcast and he sniffs squirrelies. And that's just what we do. We talk a little bit. He comes in, he gets his ear scratches, but then we're off and we're doing our own things. And that works for us, right? It would not work for me to have to tell him what to do every single step of our walk. <laughs> it just wouldn't work for me. It's not my preference, right? So when I'm working with an animal, when I'm working with a dog, I really prefer to have them make as many decisions on their own as they possibly can. I realize that's not possible for many dogs. I realize that for many dogs, if you tried to let them have, you know, all of the decisions in the world that would actually cause them more anxiety. I get it. That's why I said, let them make as many decisions as they possibly can. Okay. It's like all of those disclaimers there, but our point is that we need to be like setting them up for the relationship that we actually want. If you don't want to have to tell your dog to loose leash walk next to you all the time, if you don't want to have to bark 15 commands at your dog every single time you walk out your front door, like let's not build that relationship. Let's not do that. Like there are alternatives. Alternatively, you could be thinking of things like having your dog do a relaxation protocol, having your dog do spins, having your dog smell the trees, having your dog um, hunt squirrelies, having your dog do a sit, having your dog do a touch, having your dog. I mean, the behavior list is endless. And what you do in that moment is going to be constantly in fluctuation. I think this part of it is where people get actually hung up. Because when I'm saying all this, when I'm saying like, hey, it sounds so great because you want to think about having a conversation with your dog. You want to think about asking your dog what they want. You want to be thinking about what the context calls for. When I say all this, all you are like, yeah, that makes so much sense. But then you're in the moment and it's time for you to figure out what behavior you want. And you're like, damn, I sure wish Jenna would just tell me one damn behavior. Like, can we just simplify this and say it's just one go-to answer? 
And I think that's one of the reasons why we gravitate to some of these trainers who do give you that one answer. Like we gravitate towards if, if all you have to do is just ask for a touch and all your miracles will go away. But what happens when we get so nitpicky and we say all you have to do is ask for a touch or all you have to do is ask for eye contact. What happens is we end up getting robot dog. We end up getting going right back to where we were with the look at that problem and the engage disengage problem where all the dog does is stare at it and get their treat and stare at it and get the treat and stare at it and get their treat and they just go on this loop that happens when you are so reliant on an individual behavior when you just constantly go on that that train and it stops feeling as organic so the next step out of that look at that is that behavior element of it now when you're doing the behavior element of it, you want to be thinking about, am I getting this, this moment, this context to be as intrinsically rewarding for me and my dog as I possibly can't? Like, let's talk about this for a second, because I think when we talk about intrinsic rewards, we imply that like everybody's just happy. As long as we get your dog happy, then that'll be fine. And so we've had pushback on that. Right. We want to say that, like, if, if we're if our goal is just to make your dog happy, well, then we look for the tail, the tail wag. And that means the dog is happy, except that we know that the tail wag isn't happy. So that means that you need to keep treating, which means you should be treating forever. Like, that's the train of thought that we've been customarily on. It's either you don't use any treats and you just look for a tail wag or you use all the treats because the tail wag isn't reliable. <laughs> the answer is somewhere in the middle, my friends. So here's the thing, when we're thinking about moving into intrinsic rewards, we need to understand that it's always a guesstimate when it comes to our dog. We're always guesstimating based off of their behavior, based off of their mood, based off of what they're actually doing. Guessing isn't always reliable. However, there is a way to make it more reliable, and that is called data. And if you are not tracking data, if your trainer is not having you track data, if your trainer doesn't even know what data to have you track, find a new trainer. <laughs> because I really don't know how you can start getting into these higher level conversations without actually observing your own dog and looking and reflecting the data. I really don't know. At that point, it's all just a guessing game. We need to take these very arbitrary thoughts and concrete them. And that is found in observable fact. Let's put the science back in our scientific dog training and actually be doing science. That's my philosophy. Okay. So yes, it's a guess, but it's a guess, it's an educated guess based off of observable fact based off of data. The other way to observe intrinsic factors is how intrinsically rewarding are you, are you feeling in that moment? One of the things that I have our clients think about is, did it feel like you had to think about what you were doing or could you just almost forget that you were training? The perfect example I had is we had just uh, at the end of January, we had a Rover team graduate, Team Cora. And Team Cora was telling me how they've almost forgotten sometimes when Cora could get reactive. Like she's not been reactive in certain circumstances for so long and they've gotten into a new routine of their dog not getting reactive that they almost forget sometimes that they're supposed to be looking out for it. The perfect example is when they're getting in the car, usually getting in the car and turning on all of the car sounds and all of that is going to make Cora feel anxious. But in this particular case, 
they've almost sometimes forget and they go, oh shoot, actually we're supposed to be observing her. Or they're on the phone. And typically six months ago, that would have made Cora really anxious, but now that's so used to it. Everything is so normalized that Cora doesn't get triggered by the phone that they're on the phone and they go, oh shoot, you know what? I should really check in with Cora's body language to make sure she's not triggered. I almost forgot. And then they look over and she's fine. That is actually when we're, when we know we're in our way to our conditioned intrinsic experience, when it feels so effortless, it feels so normal. We're in our new normal. We're experiencing new happiness. Our dog is just living. We're just living. And it doesn't feel like we're training. We just are existing and things are happy. That is the end game. We must have our eyes set on that. I'm not saying rush to the end game. I'm saying we must be aware what the end game is. And we must have a process to get you to that point. And getting stuck in the engage disengage loop is not going to get you to that end game, my friend. It's just not. So here's some homework assignments that I want you to do right now. Number one, assess whether or not you're actually in an engage disengage loop. Do you find that your dog is constantly chronically staring at you? See the trigger, look at you, get a treat. Stare at the trigger, look at you, get a treat. Stare at the trigger, look at you, get a treat. And it feels like this heightened, excitable state. And it's just very arousing. That's number one check-in. If it does feel that way, we need to be reassessing your training plan. You need to be thinking about what behaviors should I be having my dog do? What behaviors should I be looking for? How can I set this up for my dog to do behaviors that make sense for this context, make sense for what she wants, and make sense for what I want? Once we have established what the behaviors are, then we need to be looking at what the condition intrinsics are. How are we progressing to not feeling like we're training? How are we progressing to the point where it feels conditioned for not just the dog, but for me, where I almost forget that I was supposed to be looking out for something because it just feels so normal. I don't feel hypervigilant anymore. If you can't see the clear linear process there, you need to be reassessing your training plan. You need to be reassessing with whom you're working because in the RP, the process that I just explained is alleviate. The process that I just explained that step-by-step -step ladder is, is the 11 steps to resolve your activity. All right, my friends, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you guys have a fabulous, fabulous weekend. Happy training. Make sure to give your dogs extra lovins, extra treats just for the hell of it. And I'll see you guys very soon. Bye friends. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dog Liaison Podcast. Support for this episode came from the Recovering Rover Program. Go to getacomdog.com to learn how you can treat your dog's anxiety. And you can support this podcast by leaving a review and sharing. I appreciate your continued support and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.